Hello, and welcome to another episode of Changemaker Conversations in Education. The title of our podcast today really resonates as today we're having a brief visit with three outstanding representatives of the University of Florida Literacy Institute, which appropriately acronymed out as UFLY. (laughs) Kind of love that. And uh, so I will first um, just want to once again acknowledge that uh, we're coming to you today from Alberta, uh, which in fact southern Alberta, and I live in the region that is Treaty 7, the territorial land of the Blackfoot Confederacy, um, home to Kainai, Siksika, Satina reservations. And, and I have the opportunity to reflect on a regular basis that uh, we owe a great deal to those who have gone before uh, us and uh, to learn from their extensive learnings of the land that we share and hopefully can move forward on that. My guests do not come from Canada today, but they too come from um, lands that were uh, taken. And uh, I'm gonna allow them to introduce themselves and particularly as they're introducing themselves, talk a little bit about why they got into this tremendous initiative to support literacy acquisition, particularly K through six, um, and, and kind of go from there. They each have a different journey and have been classroom teachers and, and students in the University of Florida. But Colleen, why don't we start with you? Sure. Hi. Happy to be here. My name is Colleen Pollitt. I am um, one of the contributing authors to the UFLY Foundations program, um, and I'm a professional learning specialist at UFLY. Um, so I have been with UFLY for the past five years. Uh, Before that, I was a classroom teacher, first grade, third grade, special education, um, all at the elementary level. Um, When I moved to UFLY, our work was centered on providing professional development to teachers in uh, early literacy instruction. Um, And as I started to um, work with uh, teachers in lots of different uh, schools and counties and states and now countries, Um, we started to see some patterns in teachers not having the uh, supplies, the materials, the resources that they needed to teach reading effectively. Um, And uh, in our home area specifically, a lot of teachers also didn't have the um, knowledge that they needed, Um, not through any fault of their own, but just a lack of preparation from their teacher prep programs. They, they weren't, they were coming into the classroom not prepared to teach reading effectively. Um, and this was a problem really at scale. It wasn't an isolated incident. And so that was really the catalyst for us as an institute um, saying, we this is our skill set and there's something that needs to, needs to be done and it's within our power to do it. So that was kind of the impetus to create UFLY Foundations, to give teachers the, the tools that they needed to teach reading effectively and, and do that in a way that is um, accessible, easy to use, and, and fun. And that's, I hope, what we've accomplished. It seems to be the case so far. And so you were building some of the program and it was being field tested. And that's where Stephanie and Christy come in a little bit. So Stephanie, tell us uh, your story. Thank you so much for having us today. I'm Stephanie McLeod. I am the implementation coordinator at UFLY. 
Um, my journey is pretty interesting. I was a classroom teacher for 10 years, and then I was an instructional coach. And one of the things that I was very passionate about was early literacy. And every time I got a coaching job and I would meet with a new principal, they wanted me to focus on third through fifth grade because we have to get those test scores. And what I really wanted to drive home to them was if you teach the kids to read in K2, you're not going to have a problem when you get to 3-5. Your problem is the fact that these kids never learn to read, and then you're always playing catch-up. And so that was one of my big passions as an instructional coach was really trying to bridge that gap and have administrators understand the importance of early literacy. And um, last year, we were lucky enough in Alachua County to pilot this amazing program, and I was an instructional coach in a school that was all in with a very supportive administration, and we just spent a lot of time building the capacity of our teachers, and it was just like a light bulb went off one day, and boom, you've got kids that are really reading for the first time in years, and we even scaled it up mid-year and started using it as an intervention with our third graders that were unable to decode and the opportunity presented itself for me to join the team at UFLY and I get to work with districts and administrators and teachers and students and doing the thing that I love so much and this is a program that I truly believe in and I know that it works and I'm just so happy to be a part of it. Thank you very much. Christina, your turn. Yes. Well, thank you again for having us, Rick. My name is Christina Giddings, and um, kind of like Stephanie, my journey to UFLY um, has a long history and is a little bit different. Um, so my roots with UFLY go way back to me getting my bachelor's and master's degree. I went through the University of Florida's teacher prep program, and so we did a lot of work with um, UFLY at that time. And I don't think at the time I realized what a gift I was given with a really great teacher prep program. I left really prepared, and I think I just thought that was the norm of how teachers in the United States left their teacher prep programs. But I'm realizing now that it's more of a rarity than the norm. Um, so because of all this work and exposure that I had done with UFLY at the undergraduate and master's level, I really enjoyed learning and reading and working with early literacy. So I went on to teach um, kindergarten for four years and then a year of first grade. And in fact, it was actually my very last year in the classroom that really prompted me to leave and join Team UFLY, which I know sounds um, interesting to say that it prompted me to leave, but um, my, my last year in the classroom was a very different year for a lot of reasons. And um, I was teaching a blended ESE model classroom, so it was 10 students with an IEP for a variety of needs and abilities. And so I had students that were nonverbal Down syndrome, deaf and hard of hearing, severe autism. We had all these things happening. And I'll never forget that first week. I ended up getting moved into this classroom. I didn't start the year there. And I'll never forget that first week. I had two different administrators on campus stop me in the hallway and say, it doesn't even matter if your kids learn anything this year, just please don't quit your job. And so that was the year we were also piloting UFLY Foundations. And over the course of the year, I found that not only did my students legitimately learn every single one of them with these varying abilities to read, it was the time of the day where everybody could just breathe a sigh of relief. We had the best behavior, everybody had a really great relationship with the routine, they knew what to expect. And so I think seeing that happen throughout the whole entire course of the year and seeing it reach so many students that otherwise would have fallen through the cracks 
I think that's what convinced me and I was sold and here I am part of Ufly and just loving all of the work and the scope we get to reach all of these people here in Alberta and across the U.S. and the world at this point. There you go. Well, yep. Once you've been to Canada and the U.S., we can say the world, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. But you are reaching the world if others are searching and find it on the website and, and begin to look into it at, at the English language level. Yes. Oh, it's everywhere at this point. Australia. We had people in Beijing reach out. Um, Vienna. It's yeah. kind of crazy to see where, how it's exploded. And each of you have a bit of a background in inclusive education as well, in your education training. And you, you spoke here of how your students, which you described as um, definitely some complex needs in, in the classroom, a, a fair number of them, but each one of the students demonstrated an increase in their ability to read, a significant increase to, oh, absolutely. to them. Yeah. And what would you attribute that to? I would say not only the explicitness of foundations, so it was so clear, every single lesson, it's so clear, and students know exactly what is being taught to them. It's super explicit. It's also very systematic. And so the logical progression really allowed for the students to build on those skills. I would also say they incorporated opportunities to respond and interleaved practice. So traditionally, we introduce a concept to students and then they practice it. And if they don't get it by the end of the week or the month or whenever you are t it's time to move on, you move on and then the students might never have time to practice that skill again or an opportunity to practice that skill. But with foundations, it uses interleaved practice, and so students are seeing the same skill over and over again and getting ample opportunities to respond. And so I noticed with my students that had varying abilities and needs, those increased opportunities to respond and that practice over a significant amount of time made all of the difference. And I should mention that I ended up looping. So I started, I taught kindergarten and then I went to first grade the following year. And so of my 21 students, I actually had 11 of them in kindergarten and then again in first grade. And so they had the same exact teacher both years. And it was really interesting to see how much more progress they made in first grade with foundations than they had made with me in kindergarten when we didn't use foundations. And so it was really interesting to see that perspective for me from I was the same teacher for them, but over two grade levels and what an impact a curriculum made once we started using it in the classroom. So Christina, I, I, I find myself wondering, you, you said you were the exact same teacher both years. Were you? That's a great point. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think there was a lot of like professional learning and a lot of professional growing that happened. And I think using something like Foundations, which is an educative curriculum and has so much information that you're learning at the same time while you're teaching the, les the lessons, really helped and really increased my knowledge from year to year. But it still was a very interesting thing for me to see. Oh, and absolutely. See these same students that I had in kindergarten and some of the struggles that they faced in kindergarten and really some of the conversations that we had had at the school level surrounding their behavior and interventions and supports we were attempting to put in place because behavior was becoming an issue. And then seeing that in first grade, all of those concerns and things that we had discussed at the school level kind of started to go away slowly. And then we all one day realized we aren't having these issues with behavior anymore. And these things that we had talked about putting children on specific types of support plans for. Um, and I really think the level of frustration surrounding literacy was decreasing. And students were finally realizing, like, I can actually do this, something that they had previously 
not had access to because of the way that the curriculum was before that. Yeah, so it's a beautiful piece to observe and, and to hear from you in your conversation. Uh, we learn how to teach better. We, we learn how to work better with our students. We, you know, you don't want to have a 30-year career where it's the same year 30 times. Right. And so the, you had that kindergarten year uh, your four of your teaching career or five of your teaching career, you learned some things. Then here comes another program. You learned exponentially as you applied those learnings, uh, your students benefit. And as they're benefiting, and I think, uh, Colleen, I feel like you might want to speak more to this or, or either of you, uh, any of you, uh, behaviors mm -hmm. as a po uh, are impacted by ability. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so like Christina, what Christina noticed in her classroom wasn't an isolated incident. We're getting reports constantly that teachers who are implementing foundations, that's the easiest and you know most peaceful and, and enjoyable part of their day for the teachers and for the students. Um, and it is because they are able to experience that success. Um, and I think, like Stephanie mentioned, how we really need, we're focusing on kindergarten through second grade, but this is a lifelong skill set that we're giving our students. And if they don't master these skills by the end of second grade, the chances of them getting access to quality intervention is decreased dramatically, especially um, once they get out of the elementary level, once they get into middle school and high school and don't have access to that instruction, um, the likelihood that it ever happens is, is very small, um, and then the frustration just grows, um, especially as you get older. Um, all of your learning is dependent on your ability to read. Um, life. Once, life, exactly. Once you get into that middle school, high school level and beyond, if you can't read, you really don't have access to knowledge and to information, um, and that is incredibly frustrating. And so you may be a brilliant student um, who has a lot of knowledge in their head, but um, if you're only ever able to demonstrate that knowledge through reading and writing, you're limited, and, and that's incredibly frustrating. Um, but that also speaks to the power of what we're doing because um, there is no age limit on uh, when you're able to learn how to read. Um, this can ha it, it should happen in kindergarten through second grade, but if it doesn't, it's not too late. Um, we actually had a um, real tearjerker story. <laughs> um, one of our, um, someone had reported to us um, through social media that they were using uh, UFLY Foundations with their father. Uh, their father never learned how to read, and um, she, had the, she got the manual, and uh, through Zoom, a couple times a week, she was going through the lessons with him, and after you know, some time of practice, he read his first book oh with my. her. Um, and so that's just the example of it. It's, it's never too late to yeah. learn these skills, and it's just such, a, like we say in our presentations, um, literacy is, is equity, it's access, it's really an issue of social justice. Um, because if you if you don't have access to literacy, you don't have access to a good quality of life. Entirely, and you you can't stay current with the learning. You can't you can't read a tweet. You can't read a post. You can't read an article. You can't a job application. You can't a menu. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to take. Uh, I'm 16. And I want to take this girl on a date, and we want to go to the restaurant. And I can't even read the menu. Mm -hmm. uh, that story was shared uh, with me by. Uh, 
to me by Shelley Moore, another educator here in Alberta. As, you know, as we look at Alberta's new curriculum, phonics, phonemic awareness, and fluency are in the curriculum as organizing ideas that end in grade two, grade three, and grade four, respectfully, respectively, and respectfully. <laughs> uh, so the curriculum is set to be covered in those first two, three, four years. Uh, as a, a junior, senior high teacher in my career, I, um, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but our audience wasn't there then. Um, you know, you had students who were in grade 10, 11, 12 were not fluent readers and struggled to read. Uh, Non-academic and academic students, very strong math students struggling a little bit in their reading, uh, definitely struggling in their writing. And uh, you, know, those, you can talk a little bit about how those two things are so complementary to each other. And uh, as a teacher, I would go, oh, I don't know where to go look for that. I certainly did not have this foundational piece of, of knowledge. I, I learned a great deal today, and I learn every day, try to anyway. Hey? And, and so where can you go? Well, you need to go back to these. And so Alberta teachers in junior, senior, high, where would you go if your students are struggling with fluency? Go look at the K-4 curriculum. Go visit with a K-4 teacher. Uh, and the same in terms of uh, my students don't seem to be able to, oh, what is that called? Decode. Uh, you know, okay, well, let's go look at the foundations for it. So uh, that's really uh, quite beautiful. There's this conversation around the science of reading. And it seems, at least in social media, to have a weird, there's a weird bend around it. Where does UFLY stand on the science of reading and how do you see it a little bit different? Uh, maybe talk a little bit about the five pillars of literacy and, and how uh, UFLY has reorganized or restructured that. Uh, who'd like to speak to that a bit? Everybody's looking at Dr. Colleen. <laughs> I can start, and then my teammates will jump in when they I inevitably forget in. something. Um, but yes, yeah, so the, the science of reading, um, that's kind of become a, a, a buzzword lately. And as happens with buzzwords, sometimes in certain contexts, it loses its original meaning. So um, at UFLY, when we think of that term, we think of the um, vast body of evidence um, and research that has been accumulated over decades um, that informs what we know about reading and reader development. Um, and it really comes from several different disciplines, um, definitely education, um, but also linguistics, um, psychology, uh, and neuroscience. Um, how What's actually happening in the brain um, as you're reading words. So, we have all of this information, decades and decades of research from all of these different fields. Um, and so, so we know how the process works. Um, but the problem that, that tends to happen with academic research is there's this research to practice gap. We have the information at the university level, but sometimes it just gets stuck in that ivory tower um, and it doesn't get disseminated out into the field. Um, and so that's kind of part of what we're doing. We're trying to, to bridge that gap. Um, and so one way we've tried to bridge that gap um, is with the um, kind of reconceptualization of, of how the reading process works. Um, so we know we have the National Reading Panel Report. Um, it's about 23 years old at this point. But at the time, it was a really seminal um, piece of research. Um, and it gave us these five pillars of reading. Instruct of, of reading. Um, so 
uh, phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary, fluency, and comprehension as kind of the five uh, factors that go into reading. And at that time, that was really significant because prior to that, um, that wasn't common knowledge, right? Teachers couldn't just rattle those, those five things off. So that was a really powerful step in the right direction, but it wasn't the full picture. Um, and so when we think of those factors as pillars, we're really not telling the most accurate story, um, especially when we think about comprehension. So comprehension really isn't one of several factors, it's the outcome. It's the whole purpose of, of why we teach reading in the first place. We read in order to comprehend. Um, and so what our um, lovely director, Dr. Holly Lane, did with some colleagues is um, kind of reconceptualize these pillars into what we call the FRI framework. Um, and so in that framework, and we can um, add a link to that. Yeah, we'll um, include a, a link to this and, and to all the things that we've talked about in the, in the website will be in the episode notes for our listeners. Um, and so basically how that's reconceptualized is uh, reading comprehension is at the center of everything. It's the, it's the end result. And then when we think about instruction, we can't teach children how to comprehend, but we can teach them the skills that contribute to comprehension. Um, so what are those skills? We have... Um, knowledge, language, metacognition, and fluency. Those are the, the big factors that contribute to um, comprehension. So knowledge, we have to know things about the world around us in order to understand what we're reading. Metacognition, we have to kind of be aware of our thinking as we're reading to um, check in on ourselves. Am I actually understanding this? Did I just daydream for a second? I need to reread that page. Language, vocabulary, syntax, semantics, everything that goes into the structure of, of language. Um, and then fluency. Um, so that, that goes into that decoding, that ability to read words. Um, so fluency is where we live in UFI foundations. Um, but when you think of that broader picture, it's just one of several components that contributes to comprehension. So we like to think of fluency as essential but not sufficient for reading comprehension to occur. You absolutely need it. You can't get around it. Um, but once you have it, you still need other skills to develop. Hey, you can, uh, I think lots of, all of us, all of us have who have been in education for any amount of time have had a student somewhere along the line who can pick up uh, something that you ask them to read and just fly right through it. And then ask them the simplest question about the paragraph they've just read. Crickets. Mm -hmm. and, and that's yeah, I like to say all the time, like I like to think of myself as a pretty fluent reader. Um, but if I were to pick up an organic chemistry textbook, for example, mm -hmm. that is not a subject area that I know anything about at all. I could read a chapter of that beautifully. I could maybe even circle the main idea, highlight some key words, uh, grab some sentences that I thought might, might be important. But I'm not really understanding anything I've read because I don't have any background knowledge um, to apply to that text. No context. No context. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Anything else you'd like to add to that, either of you? Um, I think in addition to that, when we look at the simple view of reading, that says that decoding and linguistic comprehension are the product that leads to reading comprehension. So reading comprehension is the product of decoding and linguistic comprehension. 
So you need the decoding, but you also need that linguistic comprehension. So yes, you have to have fluency, but you have to have background knowledge. Mm -hmm. You have to have vocabulary. If you don't have one, you have nothing. Right. I love the, the math equation that you had with that formula in terms of one times one is, is one, definitely. And if you're super strong in something, I, I guess, could you have a number greater than, you know, if we were going to have a, if I was going to read something about football, having coached a ton of football in my life, that might be a two times one. And I'm, okay, very strong, easy for you to understand. You know, um, several years ago, at the high school where I was uh, administrator at the time, we entered into a literacy across the curriculum conversation. And um, through that process, our teachers became aware of sort of language levels. And as our science teachers and, and non-academic science classes looked at and ran their uh, exams through, um, you know, what level of language is this uh, tool on the internet, they discovered that here in this um, grade 10 lowest level of, of rigor, yeah, it's, it's a fair word, uh, course, the quiz was written at a grade 16 level. And so what were you testing? Mm -hmm. and, and what if we wrote that at a grade nine level for these grade 10 struggling readers? What happened then? And suddenly, just by doing that, just by running that same quiz through and leveling the reading level a little bit, mm -hmm. the results went up significantly. We also took a look at uh, textbook reading difficulty and determined that the hardest textbook in the entire high school curriculum was the Milady's Cosmetology textbook <laughs> because of all the science in it. Right. Right? So and all technical of the knowledge, right? Technical knowledge. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Technical knowledge was huge. And, you know, what I love about this uh, graphic of yours, the Florida Reading Initiative conceptual framework that was put together, the entire concept of teaching for conceptual understanding is about being able to transfer knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so when I read something or see something and want to write about it, having some awareness of what it is makes the reading work. That's the theory behind this whole thing, isn't it? What's one big myth buster that each of you might want to share about learning to read uh, that, that's out there right now? Oh, there's so many that we could get yeah, from. Yeah. I know, we I could spend an hour on the myths. So I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm inviting you to do okay, I have one. one, your favorite. Okay, I'm going to think about this while Kelly does. <laughs> <laughs> what? I, I might Hard be stealing yours. Down. I don't know. But... Um, one is, is that, um, well, there's a couple together. Um, so, so one um, is the myth that um, only a small number of children have the capacity to learn how to read. Oh, thank heavens you said that one. That okay. is absolutely untrue. Um, in the U.S., we have um, measures of, of student achievement, and we are sitting at about 35% of our nation's fourth graders reading proficiently. 
Um, but that absolutely does not mean only 35% of them are capable of reading proficiently. Um, it just means only 35% of them have been taught to read proficiently, I like to, I like to think of it. So it means 65% need an explicit and systematic reading program. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So, so the myth that only a certain number of children have the capacity to learn how to read is absolutely not true. And if a child is struggling to learn how to read, odds are they just have not been given appropriate instruction. That's a super good one. Yeah. Stephanie? Okay, I have one. Um, we get asked this question a lot in our Facebook group. If you haven't joined the Facebook group, please come join us. We're we'll put the link in the on notes. On there five days a week. Uh, <laughs> no. um, the one that we get asked a lot that I think is just insane is, you know, um, no, my kids, they, they can already read. They're really smart. They don't need this. And that's just not true. It's harmful to no one to sit through a systematic phonics lesson. But what we find a lot of times is that there are, they may be able to read at a level that's much higher than the grade level that they're in, but they're still missing significant pieces. And that might impact their ability to encode or spell. It might impact their writing. It might even impact their comprehension. So every single child deserves to have this systematic and explicit instruction even the ones that you think don't need it everybody needs it there's a was there not a three-step phrase to this it hurts no one mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, harmful what? to none beneficial to all essential for many essential for many perfect thank you your turn christina well stephanie did take the one i was going oh. to share <laughs> that's okay it's a good one. it is a good one so I think maybe, can I share, instead of a misconception, sure. can I share maybe like something that's often put into practice in schools that is contributing to this like place that we are in with um, the U.S. and our statistics with reading? I think for me, and it kind of plays into what we were talking about previously about background knowledge and um, how important that is into helping a child understand what they are reading. So it plays such a big role in reading comprehension. And I think for me, What's really interesting to see is so many schools that I don't want to say are not making um, reading in the primary grades a priority, but they're focusing so much on testing grades. So in the United States, that starts in grade three. Test to death. Yes. And so they're, they're funneling all of their resources, all of their teachers, those have the smallest class sizes, all of their interventionists are all funneling into grade three, four, and five. And they're kind of letting kindergarten, first, and second grade fall to the wayside in terms of supporting an intervention. An intervention. And what's really interesting is seeing a lot of schools and districts that will use like a science time or a social studies time to pull out students from class to provide reading intervention. And I, it's so interesting to see that pattern happening so pervasively in different places because what ends up happening is those students end up missing really crucial lessons in science and social studies and so then when they reach the third grade they're reading something and they have no contextual point of reference for anything that they're reading because they haven't been in a science class for three years because they've been constantly pulled out and so I think that's something that helping um, a lot of teachers and districts understand the connection between all of these pieces is really important so it's really important that we teach students explicitly and systematically but we also need to allow them to be in the classroom during science and social studies. Like we need to protect that as much as we're protecting literacy block time um, so that students get that really invaluable background knowledge component. 
Um, it's actually really funny because I have a kind of a personal story that relates to this. And it's funny because we are in Alberta right now where it is quite snowy. Um, so we're all from Florida. And uh, me personally, I was doing this activity with my kindergarten students where they were sequencing um, different things that they were reading. And so we had practiced this many times. They, they understood how the activity worked. And we had done it through a variety of scenarios. And um, we get to one, and it's what kind of clothing you need for the snow. And so my students were able to perfectly read what was on each card, but they were not able to put it into a logical sequence. And so at first, it was kind of confusing because they had done so well with it previously. And then I realized I had not spent any significant amount of time building their background knowledge on the kind of clothing that they would need for the snow. So we're talking children in Florida who are five and six years old who've likely never been to the snow before. And so here I am asking them, what do you put on first, your sweater or your coat or your socks or this? And so it was such a great way for me to see how much that background knowledge piece that they were missing completely impacted their ability to understand and work with what I had presented to them. And they were so confused and frustrated because they have no idea, no idea if you were to ask them what kind of clothing they need to put on for the snow. Um, so it was a really interesting kind of thing to see that happen. Can I add to that a little yeah. bit? So, um, so yeah, thinking about um, identifying the problem but then finding the right solution, right? So when we think about we have these tested grades that are such a high priority and we, we can identify the problem, right? The children are not comprehending what they're reading. But the solution is not provide comprehension intervention or provide test prep practice or all of these mm -hmm. things. The solution is we have to dig a little bit deeper to understand what part of that whole kind of system has broken down that is contributing to the comprehension. So is it a lack of background knowledge? Is it a lack of fluency? Is it a lack of vocabulary? The answer is not more test prep, more comprehension strategies. That's not gonna get us what we need. We need to dig a little bit deeper and, and find the root cause of the problem. And the vast majority of the time, the root cause of the problem is a lack of um, decoding fluency. So we, we need to get that done first and then. Um, and I feel like that also ties in like that whole idea like so often we see schools and districts that provide almost like blanket intervention groups and so they'll say okay kindergarten intervention is at this time and they come and they collect the kindergartners and they sit them down and every single child let's say there's 10 of them receives the exact same type of intervention so I think that really speaks and um, highlights on what Colleen was just saying and sharing about how when we have a student that's indicating that something has broken down along the way, really looking at each piece and providing targeted intervention for that specific skill that that student or students need support with. So it won't always be the same, even though they might be in the same class or in the same grade level. Um, even within decoding specific skills and areas that we can support, and we end up spending less time because it's so much more targeted with that with the skill that they actually need. Yeah, you, and that actually leads me to another myth. Yes, go ahead. There is a big myth that you must do something different in intervention than you're doing in your tier one core. And that's simply not true. If your core instruction is systematic and explicit, it provides those opportunities to respond and you can give corrective feedback then that is exactly what you should be doing in your more targeted intervention because you're using that same scope and sequence and building that same skill set and you're not trying to teach them a different program. You're targeting the thing that you actually need. Well, in, in the entire process, 
is a formative process. So what are you even looking at any form of a summative assessment for anyway? Mm-hmm. You, you're one of the strengths of the program, as I saw today in your session, was that ability to really drill down to what specific pieces these specific students are missing and cluster them and in a short period of time, two, three minutes a day for a, f- a few weeks, correct it. Right. And, and so you know, that's very important. The piece of um, disciplinary literacy is what I, I would say, junior, senior, high, you know, you need to have all of this social studies. You, you have your conversations and you do your writing different in social studies than you might do in science and, and same language arts and, and so on. So taking students out of class, yeah, no, that's, that's not helping. That, that is actually exacerbating the problem. And that was a multisyllabic word right there. I just <laughs> want to say, uh, here in this whole literacy piece. But the, the other piece, uh, the importance, and I didn't actually hear you talk about too much today, and you, you said you've created some um, readings to, that fit your curriculum specifically. The decodable passages. The decodable passages. And uh, uh, the question I have in my head is, how diverse are your decodable passages just because, uh, and, and really what I want to get to here just in this last is the importance of diversity in what the students have in front of them to read and, and that it, they can see themselves in the, in the words and in the writing too. So. Yeah, absolutely. So a little background. Um, uh, one component of the U5 Foundation's program is reading a decodable text. Mm-hmm. Um, and so decodable text is just a very um, controlled passage that only includes the letter-sound relationships um, that have been previously taught. Um, and so it's a specific text designed for a specific purpose, which is to... Um, practice those skills in context. So it shouldn't be the only text that students have access to, and it shouldn't be used all day, every day. It's just a a specific one for a specific purpose. So um, my colleague and I actually wrote passages for UFLY Foundations because we got very frustrated trying to align others to ours, and they didn't fit quite right. So um, in writing these, um, some of them are, are more intriguing and have a, a more um, exciting story than others, especially as you get farther in the sequence and you have uh, access to a wider range of words. You know, at the very beginning, we do a lot of sitting on a mat in a pit for quite some time, <laughs> um, and then we, we get a little bit farther. But um, to your point about um, diversity and like cultural representation, as much as we could, we tried to include that, um, especially with uh, decodable names. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually... Uh, took this very seriously and made a whole um, spreadsheet of, of decodable names so it wasn't just, you know, Mary and Sue and Bob and Ted. You know, we had, we still need the decodability, um, but uh, names that are representative of a variety of cultures. So you'll see, you'll see that in there um, particularly. Um, uh, but beyond that, um, a lot of them are just kind of like social situations and, you know, little like fairy tale kind of things like that that could apply to anybody. But um, thinking back to decodable text is just one piece of text that students should have access to. We really need classroom libraries that have a wide variety of good quality text. And at that kindergarten through second grade level, um, just because a student can't read a book doesn't mean they, sh- they can't hear it. Right. So uh, 
teachers having opportunities to do read-alouds in their classroom, that's really the time where you can dig into those really rich, good quality texts that um, I always think of that uh, windows and mirrors saying, Mm -hmm. right? So you want windows into um, cultures and experiences that are different from you, but you also want mirrors to be able to see yourself represented in in what you're reading. Um, And so the best avenue for that is is those good quality trade books that you can have. That's also a great way to expand kids' vocabulary and their background knowledge and all of that. Um, so yes, read all the books to your kids. <laughs> I think we, we get that question a lot. Um, and I think that, you know, with the science of reading, again, it's been such a buzzword out there. And I think it paints decodable text as this either or kind of situation where it says like, you either have decodable text or you don't, and you use level text and picture books and all these things. And we like to think of it as a both and situation. So decodable text, like Colleen said, has such a valuable purpose within the classroom. But it also, again, like Colleen said, it's very controlled and tightly controlled to match what you just taught. And so we do have to interpret that with caution and make sure that we're giving children other types of books that expand their set for variability. And so You know, for example, like if we teach students EA together, making the E sound, that's actually a pretty uncommon representation for that sound. But when we give them a decodable, it has that all throughout it. And so then students can easily interpret that to mean that that pattern is really, really common and very frequent. And so we want to make sure that we're giving children text also that's a little bit less controlled in addition to decodable text. Um, So they have a chance to practice that opportunity of reading a sentence and saying, okay, this word, I read it as breed, it doesn't make sense, so now I'm gonna try it with a different association. Oh, it must be the word bread by using the surrounding context. And so that's also been a big piece of uh, work that we're trying to disseminate out is explaining that, you know, decodable text is really valuable, but you don't have to choose one or the other. You can use different types of text in your classroom, and you should. It's just you use them for different purposes and at different times. Well, and and mostly, Get text into your classroom. Build diverse right. uh, libraries. There's uh, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop's article on mirrors and windows. It's a beautiful article. We'll put the link to that article in there as well. It's often referred to it, but it is so critical. And you know, I'm really intrigued by uh, your reference to names and decodable names um, as part of what I would include in good sound culture, um, pardon me, character education um, in terms of how to properly interact with people. If somebody is wearing a name tag at the gas station, at the hotel, at whatever, if they're wearing the name tag, use their name when you talk to them. Yeah. And I can tell you that here in Canada with a, a nice multicultural society that we have, when I greet someone by their name and I get it right, which is more often than not so far, <laughs> this isn't quite wood, but knock on it. But when you get their name right, you pronounce their name right from wherever they hail in the world, Eastern European, uh, East Indian, it, do, it doesn't matter. You hit it right, the smile mm-hmm. and the value and the fact that th- you see them they mm-hmm. feel seen. Yeah. And they, it is entirely different. And what does that do? I mean, what have we got for a problem in the world right now? Uh, us and them, mm-hmm. Republican and Democrat, conservative and liberal, 
or whatever the case may be, right? Chiefs fans and Eagles fans. It doesn't matter. But the problem is one of not seeing and reading about and listening about and writing about others. This is, this is all foundational heroic work that you're doing. Now, I only have one other question left for each of you, I, I warned you, but... I do have one other resource thinking about, um, you know, choosing books for your classroom and making sure they're representative and diverse. Um, there's a website called the Diverse Book Finder. Mm -hmm. So it's diversebookfinder.org. Um, and we've uh, done some work with uh, with that resource at UFLY, um, and it's really, really wonderful. It's a search engine for books, but the way that they've... Um, tagged and categorized um, the books makes it really easy to find exactly what you're looking for um, and so there are books about um, different cultures um, different um, abilities you know any kind of level of diversity you can imagine um, there are tags for that you can you can find books for um, but one of the things I really like um, is they have a category and the term of the category is escaping me but it's essentially just like um, just everyday life mm -hmm. with diverse characters. Oh. So um, it's, it's a great resource. Yes. And so like, for example, um, when you have, you know, books that feature um, black children, a lot of times it's about strife and uh, hardship and overcoming obstacles. And if that's the only time you ever see black children represented in books, what message does that send? So in this resource, you can find just books about everyday life as a kid, losing your tooth or getting your first pet, but with characters from a variety of backgrounds and races. Um, and so that level of diversity is something I don't think that we think about a lot, but it's so important. Yeah, certainly um, Dr. Goldie Mohammed and, and others uh, inspire me on a regular basis to see, see things I didn't see before. I mean, the classroom I graduated from in high school uh, looked an awful lot like me. It mm -hmm. was just windows, or mirrors, pardon me. It literally was a, everybody looked the same, and everybody had the same background, and that's not the high schools that exist today in the exact same communities. My last question for you today is, what are you reading? Because in this uh, podcast series we do share, or that you would, one book you would recommend of any level in life that you would recommend to uh, fellow educators or parents um so i have a couple i liked we, we talked about this before but um i like to have a variety of genres on my nightstand just depending on the mood i'm in and and the vibe i'm about um but um when i thought of this i thought of the one book i read recently that really has just not left my mind that is just one that has really just made me think and kind of shift perspective about the world. Um, and that book is uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer. Um, and it's a book, uh, she is a fantastic person, a, a wonderful storyteller. Um, she's uh, an indigenous woman and also a um, botanist, I believe, uh, a PhD in, in New York. Um, and so she combines her indigenous knowledge and her academic knowledge um, and this storytelling about what we know about the earth and how we can respect it and, and live with it and, and how we can um, really value indigenous knowledge um, in the academic sense. Um, and so it's just, it's one that really, again, shifted my perspective. And I find myself like throughout the day just really 
ruminating on and I'm probably going to read it again because I missed a bunch you know the first time through so I feel like I'll pick up more each time but she's a fabulous storyteller and really uh great great read fantastic Steph okay so and I call her Steph and she it might that might be bad Stephanie it's okay it's your turn (laughs) it's okay you can call me Steph so I recently went on a Disney cruise, so I was in a very, like, Disney mood, and I wanted to read things like that when we were on their private island. So I picked up, um, there's a series of books called A Twisted Tale, and it's a twisted take on all of the Disney stories. So some of them are told from, like, the perspective of the villains, and it's just really interesting. They're all different authors. It's an entire series. Um, Part of Your World was the first one I read, and um, I forget the name of it now, but the um, the Aladdin one was pretty good, too. So they're light, easy reads. They're probably even made for young adults. I like to read those kinds of books sometimes, but, you know, mm-hmm. if you need something fun. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, so I have two recommendations. One's a personal favorite and one's a professional favorite. Um, So personally, I recently finished reading Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Pelt. It was a very fascinating story. Um, I tend to not stray into the area of nonfiction often, um, and this kind of delved into that a little bit. It's a story about a woman and an octopus and her work with the octopus. Um, It was a phenomenal read. I highly recommend it. Um, And then professionally, Dr. Lane, actually, the director of Ufly, she gave me a copy of Marilyn Adams' Beginning to Read book, and that book is quite old, but so relevant and so wonderful. And I cannot suggest it enough um, that every educator, honestly, in any grade level, pick up a copy. Um, it's very dense, but easy to read, if that makes sense. So it's easy to go through the page and read it, but you learn so much. And I feel like it's one of those books that I could pick up five more times and still learn new information every time I read it. Um, it was just the best kind of book to read whenever um, I read it. It was fantastic. Highly recommend. Well, thank you very much. So I asked for 30 minutes. We took 52. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much uh, for coming to Alberta and for spending some time uh, with the teachers here today and, uh, and uh, tomorrow and Saturday. And uh, look forward to staying in touch and, and helping connect and work with uh, teachers across Alberta. And if we can help you get uh, involved with teachers in BC, Saskatchewan, et cetera, et cetera, Montana, wherever, <laughs> it doesn't matter. We just want kids to be able to read because you are absolutely right. A poverty in reading is at least as decimating as, a, as plain financial poverty. Absolutely. And... Uh, Maybe even more so. Perhaps, well, contributory, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. right. You know, what, what's the chicken and what's the egg in yeah. that instance, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, with that, uh, we'll uh, close this off because it sounds like something's falling through the roof on us <laughs> anyway and, uh, and go from so there. Thank you so much for Yes, us. thank you. This has been so wonderful. We'd like to thank Christina Giddings, Stephanie McLeod, and Dr. Colleen Pollitt for taking some time at the end of a day of presenting in Lethbridge to engage with us in this conversation. Our website, the arpdc.ab.ca website, will have a blog post linked to this podcast with links related to it. Additionally, um, we have the opportunity to provide 
uh, services and support in professional development to educators across Alberta and many of our sessions are open to those outside of Alberta who would like to attend. Thank you. Find a good book, read a good book, share a good book. Take care.